Chapter 8 Esther Defeats Her Enemies By the narrative of Esther's history, the Lord intended to set before us a wonderful example of His providence, so that when we had viewed it with interest and pleasure, we might praise His name and then go on to acquire the habit of observing His hand in other histories, and especially in our own lives. John Flavel says well that he who observes providence will never be long without a providence to observe. Footnote. John Flavel, circa 1628-1691, was an English Puritan minister and author. Some of his writings, including Preparations for Sufferings, Biblical Mourning, and Keeping the Heart, are available from Aneco Press. The man who can walk through the world and see no God is said upon inspired authority to be a fool. Psalm 14, 1, 53, 1. Romans 1, 20-22. The wise man's eyes, though, are in his head. He sees with an inner sight and discovers God everywhere at work. It is his joy to perceive that the Lord is working according to His will in heaven and on earth and in all deep places. It has been well said that the book of Esther is a record of wonders without a miracle, and therefore, though equally revealing the glory of the Lord, it sets forth in another manner from that which is displayed in the overthrow of Pharaoh by miraculous power. Let us now get to the story. There were two races, one of which God had blessed and promised to preserve, and another of which He had said that He would utterly put out the remembrance of it from under heaven. Israel was to be blessed and made a blessing, but the Lord had sworn in regard to Amalek that the Lord will have war with Amalek from generation to generation. Exodus 17:16. These two peoples were therefore in deadly hostility, like the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent, between whom the Lord himself has put an enmity. Genesis 3:15. Many years had rolled by. The chosen people were in great distress, and at this far-off time there still existed upon the face of the earth some relics of the race of Amalek. Among them was one descended of the royal line of Agag, whose name was Haman, and he was in supreme power at the court of Ahasuerus, the Persian monarch. It was God's intent that one last conflict should take place between Israel and Amalek. The conflict that began with Joshua in the desert was to be finished by Mordecai in the king's palace. This last struggle began with great disadvantage to God's people. Haman was the prime minister of the far-extending empire of Persia, the favorite of a despotic monarch, who was compliant to his will. Mordecai, a Jew in the employment of the king, sat in the king's gate, and when he saw proud Haman go to and fro, he refused to pay him the homage that others so subserviently gave to him. Mordecai would not bow his head or bend his knee to Haman, and this aggravated Haman exceedingly. It came into his mind that Mordecai was of the seed of the Jews, and with that remembrance came the costly determination to avenge the quarrel of his race. He thought it repulsive to involve only one man, so he resolved to incarnate all the hate of generations and at one blow sweep the accursed Jews, as he thought them, from off the face of the earth. He went in to the king, with whom his word was power, 
and told him that there was a certain people scattered up and down the Persian empire who were different from all others and were opposed to the king's laws. He explained that it was not to the king's benefit to tolerate them. Haman asked that they might all be destroyed, stating that he would pay an enormous sum of money into the king's treasury to compensate for any loss of revenue by their destruction. He intended that the spoil that would be taken from the Jews would tempt their neighbors to kill them, and that the portion allotted to himself would repay the amount that he advanced. Thus, he intended to make the Jews pay for their own murder. He had no sooner asked for this horrible grant than the monarch allowed it. He took his signet ring off his finger and told Haman to do with the Jews whatever seemed good to him. Thus the chosen seed are in the hands of the Agagite, who thirsts to annihilate them. Only one thing stands in the way. The Lord has said, No weapon that is formed against thee shall prosper, and every tongue that riseth against thee in judgment thou shalt condemn. Isaiah 54:17 We will see what happens and learn from it. We will learn from the narrative that God places his agents in the right places for doing his work. The Lord was not taken by surprise by this plot of Haman. He had foreseen it and forestalled it. In order to match Haman's deceptive malicious plan, it was necessary for someone of Jewish race to have great influence with the king. How is this to be brought about? If a Jewess were to become the queen of Persia, the power she would possess would be useful in counteracting the enemy's design. This had been all arranged years before Haman had dreamed up in his wicked heart the scheme of murdering the Jews. Esther, whose sweet name signifies myrtle, had been elevated to the position of the queen of Persia by a remarkable course of events. It happened that Ahasuerus, at a certain drinking session, was so far gone with wine as to forget all the proprieties of Eastern life, and he sent for his queen Vashti to display herself to the people and the princes. No one dreamed in those days of disobeying the tyrant's word, and therefore all stood shocked when Vashti, evidently a woman of proper royal spirit, refused to degrade herself by being made a spectacle before that crude crowd of drinking princes, and she refused to come. For her courage, Vashti was divorced, and a new queen was sought for. We cannot commend Mordecai for putting his adopted daughter in competition for the monarch's choice. It was contrary to the law of God, and it was dangerous to her soul in the highest degree. It would have been better for Esther to have been the wife of the poorest man of the house of Israel than to have gone into the den of the Persian despot. The Bible does not excuse, much less commend, the wrongdoing of Esther and Mordecai for acting in this way, but simply tells us how divine wisdom brought good out of evil, even as the chemist draws out healing drugs from poisonous plants. The high position of Esther, though gained contrary to the wisest of laws, was overruled for the best interests of her people. Esther in the king's house was the means of defeating the malicious adversary. But Esther alone was not enough. She was closed up in the harem, surrounded by her attendants and her maids of honor, but quite secluded from the outside world. A watchman is needed outside the palace to guard the people of the Lord and to urge Esther to action when help is needed. 
Mordecai, her cousin and foster father, obtained a job that placed him at the palace gate. Where could he be better posted? Much of the royal business will come under his eye here, and he is quick, courageous, and unflinching. Israel never had a better sentinel than Mordecai, the son of Kish, a Benjamite. He was a very different man from that other son of Kish who had allowed Amalek to escape in former times. 1 Samuel 15. Mordecai's relationship to the queen allowed him to communicate with her through Hatak, one of the king's attendants, and when Haman's evil decree was published, it was not long before intelligence of it reached her ear and she felt the danger to which Mordecai and all her people were exposed. By remarkable providences, the Lord placed those two most efficient instruments in their places. Mordecai would have been of little use without Esther, and Esther could have rendered no aid if it had not been for Mordecai. Meanwhile, a conspiracy was hatched against the king, which Mordecai discovered and communicated to the highest authority. This put the king under obligation to him, which was a necessary part of the Lord's plan. Now, whatever trouble may be brewing against the cause of God and truth, and I dare say there is very much going on at this moment, for neither the devil, the Jesuits, nor the atheists are quiet for very long, we can be sure that the Lord knows all about it, and He has His Esther and His Mordecai ready at their posts to frustrate their plans. The Lord has His men well placed, and He has His ambushes hidden, ready to surprise His foes. We never need to be afraid that the Lord has not forestalled His enemies and provided against their evil. Every child of God is where God has placed him for some purpose, and the practical use of this first point is to lead you to inquire for what practical purpose God has placed each one of you where you now are. You have been hoping for another position where you could do something for Jesus. Do not wish for anything of the kind. But serve him where you are. If you are sitting at the king's gate, there is something for you to do there. And if you were on the queen's throne, there would be something for you to do there. Don't ask to be either gatekeeper or queen, but whichever you are, serve God in that position. Are you rich? God has made you a steward. Take care that you are a good steward. Are you poor? God has thrown you into a position where you will be better able to give a word of sympathy to poor saints. Are you doing your allotted work? Do you live in a godly family? God has a motive for placing you in such a happy position. Are you in an ungodly house? You are a lamp hung up in a dark place. Make sure you shine there. Esther did well because she acted as Esther should. And Mordecai did well because he acted as Mordecai should. I like to think that God has put each one of us in the right place, even as a good captain well arranges the different parts of his army. Although we don't know the captain's plan of battle, it will be seen during the conflict that he has placed each soldier where he should be. Our wisdom is not to desire another place, nor to judge those who are in another position. But each one who has been redeemed with the precious blood of Jesus should say, Lord, what do you want me to do? For here I am, and by your grace I am ready to do it. Don't forget the fact that God in his providence places his servants in positions where he can make use of them. The Lord not only arranges his servants, but he restrains his enemies. 
I want to call your attention particularly to the fact that Haman, having gained a decree for the destruction of all the Jews upon a certain day, was very anxious to have his cruel work done thoroughly, and therefore, being very superstitious and believing in astrology, he told his magicians to cast lots so that he might find a lucky day for his great undertaking. The lots were cast for the various months, but not a single fortunate day could be found until near the end of the year. The chosen day was the thirteenth day of the twelfth month. The magicians told gullible Haman that on that day the heavens would be propitious, and the star of Haman would be ascending. Truly, the lot was cast into the lap, but the disposal of it was of the Lord. Proverbs 16.33 There were eleven months left before the Jews would be put to death, and that would give Mordecai and Esther time to turn around, and if anything could be done to reverse the cruel decree, they had time to do it in. If the lot had fallen on the second or third month, the swift dromedaries and camels and messengers would hardly have been able to reach the far borders of the Persian dominions. Certainly a second set of messengers to counteract the decree could not have done so, and humanly speaking the Jews would have been destroyed. But in that secret council chamber where the sorcerers and the man who asks counsel at the hands of the devilish powers sit, the Lord Himself is present, frustrating the signs of the liars and making fortune-tellers mad. Their enchantments and their many sorceries were in vain. The astrologers, the stargazers, and the monthly diviners were all fools together, and they led the superstitious Haman to destruction. Surely there is no enchantment against Jacob, neither is there any divination against Israel. Numbers 23.23 You who are righteous, trust in the Lord, and in patience possess your souls. Luke 21.19 Leave your adversaries in the hands of God, for He can make them fall into the snare that they have secretly laid for you. Notice well that Haman selected a method of destroying the Jews that was wonderfully overruled for their preservation. They were to be slain by any of the people among whom they lived who chose to do so, and their plunder was to reward their slayers. This was a very shrewd plan, for greed would naturally incite the lower sort of men to murder the thrifty Jews, and no doubt there were debtors who would also be glad to see their creditors disposed of. But notice the loophole for escape that this provided. If the decree had stated that the Jews should be slain by the soldiers of the Persian Empire, it would have been done, and it's not easy to see how the Jews could have escaped. However, since the matter was left in private hands, the subsequent decree that they could defend themselves was sufficient to counteract the first edict. Thus, the Lord arranged that the wisdom of Haman would turn out to be foolishness, after all. In another point, we notice the restraining hand of God. Although Mordecai had provoked Haman to the utmost, he was not immediately put to death. Haman refrained himself. Esther 5.10. Why did he do so? Proud men are usually in a mighty uproar if they consider themselves insulted, and they are ready at once to take revenge. But Haman refrained himself. Until that day in which his anger burned furiously and he set up the gallows, he smothered his passion. I marvel at this. 
It shows how God makes the wrath of man to praise him, and he restrains the rest. Mordecai will not die a violent death by Haman's hand. The enemies of the church of God and of his people can never do more than the Lord permits. They cannot go a hair's breadth beyond the divine permission, and when they are permitted to do their worst, there is always some weak point about all that they do, some extreme folly that renders their fury vain. The wicked carry about them the weapons of their own destruction, and when they rage most against the Most High, the Lord of all brings out of it good for His people and glory to Himself. Do not judge providence in little pieces, for it is a magnificent mosaic and must be seen as a whole. Don't say of any one hour, This is dark. It may be so, but that darkness will minister to the light, even as the dark gloom of midnight makes the stars appear more bright. Trust ye in the Lord forever, for in the Lord Jehovah is everlasting strength. Isaiah 26 4. His wisdom will undermine the minds of deceit, and his skill will reach above the climbing of guile. He taketh the wise in their own craftiness, and the counsel of the froward is carried headlong. Job 5.13. God in his providence tests his people. God tested Mordecai. I have no doubt that he was a quiet old man, and it must have been a daily trial to him to stand upright or to sit in his place when Haman, that proud peer of the realm, went strutting by. His fellow servants told him that the king had commanded all men to pay homage to Haman, but he held his own, knowing what it might cost him to be so sternly independent. Haman was an Amalekite, and Mordecai the Jew would not bow before him. What trouble it must have been to the heart of Mordecai when he saw the proclamation that all the Jews must die. The good man must have bitterly lamented his unhappy fate in being the innocent cause of the destruction of his nation. Even if you know you have done right, yet if you bring down trouble, and especially destruction, upon the heads of others, it cuts you to the quick. You could bear martyrdom for yourself, but it is sad to see others suffer through your firmness.